the Ten Commandments. Like Ben-Hur? Ben-Hur. <laughs> Except that's not biblical, is it? That's just like about the chariot races and whatnot. What about whatnot. that uh, Ridley Scott film? Oh, like Exodus. Oh, yeah. Gods and sorry. Kings or something. Exodus, Gods and Kings or uh, Aronofsky's Noah. Yeah. See, there's a bunch of them. They just suck. Hi there, this is Luke. On today's episode, we talk about creative liberties, Christ as a character, and the importance of narrative in The Prince of Egypt and The Passion of the Christ. Welcome to Notes from the Silver Screen. I love you, Anna. I love what is eternal in you. I don't know where to put things, you know? I really do have love to give. I just don't know where to put it. Can you forgive me? I didn't fight hard enough. Father, give me your hand. I want to bring salvation. In the scriptures, Jesus rose on the third day in Japan. <laughs> the Son of God rises daily. With this veritas, Claudia, Emaudis. And even now, I wish that God had chose another, serving as your foe on his behalf. It's the last thing that I wanted. This was my home. All this pain and devastation, how it tortures me inside. All the innocent who suffer from your stubbornness and pride. We got two films, drastically different films. I guess they're not that far apart because uh, Prince Egypt is 94 and... Is it 94? I thought it was like 98. One's Passion. Uh, it wasn't Passion in like early 2000s, so I guess they're like a decade apart or half a decade. Yeah, look, it says 98 for Prince of Egypt. Oh, uh, I get... So they started production in 94, though. When's uh, Passion? What year was Passion out? 2004? 2004. I want to talk about the Prince of Egypt first, because that's the one that did it right. Okay. It is iconic. It's a touchstone for contemporary culture. You'll still see it pop up online, and people love it across all different faith backgrounds. Uh, if you if you watch the movie at the beginning, they have that statement put in there, where it says the motion picture you are about to see is an adaptation of the Exodus story. While artistic and historical license has been taken, we believe that this film is true to the essence, values, and integrity of a story that is a cornerstone of faith for millions of people worldwide. So I think they went into it with a very um, deliberate, you know, approach. You, you'll see in the making of the Prince of Egypt, like they even like went to Egypt and looked at like the art styles there and everything like that. But what I really want to take from this is where it says, or I guess they say our artistic and historical license has been taken. And that's why this movie, like Broad Strokes, is infinitely better than The Passion. I guess we'll get into more detail when we get, talk about The Passion. But in general, it seemed like he was super focused on Let's have everybody speak in the language they spoke, which I guess I think I read that that wasn't even true because like the they had a different version of the Aramaic or whatever. But, you know, have it in Aramaic and Greek and all the costumes are right. And 
you know, all these historical details are in there, but there's no um, artistic license, I think, taken with it, really. And that's what you need to make it appreciable. If you look at the Prince of Egypt, it's not a story about the Exodus. I think they even said that, too, in the making of the Prince of Egypt. It's a story about two brothers, and that's what makes it compelling. It's a human story. You get to see the struggles that Moses has when he finds out where he came from and when his eyes are open to the slavery, when he flees to uh, Jethro and with Zipporah in the wilderness. And when he's called and he's not sure if he can do it and he has to go back. And there's that whole struggle that he's going up against his brother. He doesn't want to do it, but he's, he's duty bound. And that's what makes it compelling as a story. And that's aside from all the other things they do, right? Like the music and the other stuff, which we can probably get into more. But yeah, I think you're right. That was probably my biggest takeaway. It, it's a good story. And the, the liberties that they take are in service of the story. And when we touch on, when we talk about the passion, I do want to talk about the liberties that Gibson took. And maybe we could talk about his reasoning behind them. But I feel like the fundamental difference is that the Prince of Egypt is focused on telling a good narrative. And that that's like where their their main focus was versus Gibson. We can talk about what, what he was going for. But I feel like the, the team at DreamWorks, I believe it was the first DreamWorks picture, right? They were freshly f founded studio. You got Spielberg, he's advising them. And... Then you talked about this notion of it's a film about brothers. And I really love that because you have this massive cinematic setting, but really that's what it is. Like the Exodus story as a whole is just setting to the film. It's, it's not about the Jews being freed from Egyptian rule. It's about Moses and Ramses. It's it's really cool this how it plays with like the the scope of the feature because you have these super impressive sequences with the plagues and crossing the Red Sea where you really get a notion of of the scope and I mean even like down to the actual nuts and bolts of production like having to develop cutting edge computer graphic systems in order to handle the like unprecedented crowds that had never been done before in CG just to give you a sense of that scope. But like really the heart of the film is, you know, when Moses and, and Ramses are just together in, in the pantheon of the gods, just talking to each other. I really love the, I, I don't even know what the song's called, but the let my people go song where it's the duet between the two. Like, that's just so... It, it's very visually well done. And then the song is is just amazing for portraying these these two sides of, of the battle. Because you really can empathize with Pharaoh. But at the same time, like, we're obviously rooting for Moses. And I, they both of the characters feel real and grounded. It's not like there's this evil Pharaoh who is enslaving, the, who's keeping them enslaved because he wants them to suffer. Like he does increase their suffering when he's upset at Moses, but he's, 
is like driven by this desire to not be the weak link. And we spend time getting characterization before the, the main thrust of the story for that express purpose of we can see that Ramses is a person. He's a human being. He has this weight on his shoulders and he feels it's his obligation to stand strong, to be, you know, his ideal version of Pharaoh that's heavily influenced by his father. Yeah, you see him kind of the back and forth. Like when Moses first came back, it's kind of like a, a strange thing in court, right? Maybe if he was a little more political, he wouldn't be so welcoming or any like pardoned him of all his crimes. Mm -hmm. And then when he figures out that he's not there to, I guess, be his brother again, he has a mission, an alternative objective. Then he's back cold. And then when he, they meet in the dark right before the angel of death passes through, and he's almost softened, but then his son comes up. So he says he's going to kill all the, you know, the Israelites. He look at Moses too, right? After the angel of death has come and he's killed his little nephew. And he leaves it and he it shows him crying. Like that's the whole scene there. They didn't need that. And at the very end too, after the whole army's been destroyed and, and Ramsey's, he, everyone else is celebrating, but he turns back, recognizes what's happened. Yeah. They purposely put in the, those beats. If you didn't have the shot of Pharaoh crying when his son dies, if you didn't have, you know, Moses turning back to see Pharaoh after the Red Sea closes, like the story would in essence be unchanged, but the emotional impact of the story would be greatly diminished. I wanted to touch uh, quickly on the use of visual symbolism, I guess you could call it. I, I really love, there's that scene where Moses runs away and he kneels in the sand and he peels off all of his, the, the, the garments or, or the symbols of his station as a prince of Egypt, right? He strips off all the gold plates and he takes off the ring that Ramses gave him and then he puts it back on and he keeps it with him. And it's kind of like, it's a visual image to symbolize their relationship. And when he comes back, he, he gives it back to Pharaoh. And that's like the point where, where you can start to see see as Pharaoh, as Ramses, he begins to harden his heart. It just goes to show the maturity of the, the team. Okay, so the other shot that really stood out to me would be early in the film where you're in the throne room and they have this shot where uh, Pharaoh is standing in front of the statue, right? And Moses talks to him after he first says that Ramses is a weak link. And then we come back. It's like a visual motif because when Ramses becomes Pharaoh, we come back and he's standing there. And now there's a statue of him and a statue of his father. And it's just like all of the visual information is used to support the narrative we've been told in dialogue about what motivates Ramses. I mean, I think it's even greater because you can, you have like this visual of the effort he's going through to create this statue. And I believe, isn't his statue bigger than his father's? I remember one's bigger. I don't know which one, yeah. if it was Seti or Ramses. I mean, either way, it would still work, right? Either he's trying to be better than his father or he feels like he isn't as great and he's striving to match him. It's just that idea of, of trying to live up to this larger than life person who in, in his worldview was literally a God. Pharaoh was God, right? Weren't pharaohs considered god kings? Yep. I think the animation, or I guess the fact that it's animated 
at all. I opened up, well, allowed like a freedom for, I guess, abstraction, like in the plagues um, montage. Also, I think the approach for the actors, they had like a, a real A-list cast, a lot of big names. But I remember in the making of The Prince of Egypt, I think it was Val Kilmer said, he approached it more like a stage play rather than, I guess, a traditional movie. I think that's interesting and probably lends itself to gravitas of the movie, the dr drama of it. I think it was one of the artists was talking about just how much Kilmer was dedicated to the role. Like she said, everybody was, was really committed to the project, but Kilmer in particular spent a huge amount of time just working on his lines. And if they, throughout the animation process, they would ask him to come back in just to redo a few lines in order to, you know, focus on a particular emotional tonality to a particular reading because they thought it would play better with, with how the animation was going. And he was more than willing to come back in and, and redo lines just so they could hit the beats exactly as they wanted to. And it just really, it was totally worth it because it plays so well. Everything fits the, the animation style, the acting, the voice acting, the, the music. It was scored by Hans Zimmer and Steven Schwartz, who did the... Uh, Steven Schwartz. The, like, the Wicked soundtrack, didn't he? But Schwartz is the lyricist then? Yeah. I think he did, like, all the, like, the individual numbers. It was like, they're singing in it. I'm assuming it's Schwartz. How about that opening? <laughs> Do you remember in the, the making of feature art when they talk about that was like the first sequence that they had done was the opening with, I don't even know what that song's called. Do you know what it's called? It's called Deliver Us. It's called Deliver Us? Mm-hmm. With Deliver Us. And they, they said, like, from a production standpoint, having that piece first, it set the whole tone because it was like, this is what we're going for. It has the scope. It has the emotional core. It's a moving piece of music. And the montage they put together to accompany it is really striking. Like a, a power punch to open with. I, I love the opening. It's so cool. And that song just bangs so good. It might be my favorite song from the film. So going back to the, the visual representation of the story... I, I felt like, I can't tell if nuanced is an appropriate word, but I really enjoyed how they chose to present the conflict between Moses and Pharaoh's priests. Nobody says it, but it's super visually apparent the differences in their methods. Because Moses, he walks into the, the throne room. It's broad daylight. He holds his staff out and in front of everybody, you can see we pan along the transformation of the staff as it turns into a serpent. And then you have the priests. The first thing they do is have the slaves draw these blinds to plunge them into darkness. Then they bring out smokes and a light show and they use flashbangs and around the river with the blood where they turn away. They turn away and, and they throw a powder in where Moses, he strolls out, he puts his staff down and, you know, no sleight of hand, no trickery. You see the blood slowly turn. I just, 
love that representation of the contrast of the power of, of God versus the power of, you know, the, the priests, then it kind of, you know, that kind of goes further into the characterization of Ramses where from, from the audience point of view, he has to kind of be like purposefully obtuse. You're, you're really reaching for a limb at that point in my mind where you see Moses, the prophet of God, turn a river to blood. And then you ha- ask your priests to, you know, turn their back, throw a little bit of powder into a bowl and get a somewhat similar result. And you're like, oh, so they can do it too, right? It's so drastically different. I read it as he's willfully obtuse. He's clutching for these straws just to maintain his stance, right? He's searching for a justification for what he's his chosen course of action instead of looking at the reality of the situation and deciding based off that. Then let my heart be hardened and never mind how high the price <laughs> may grow. That that's that for me is is the other uh, great song. And again, it's accompanied by the stellar visual montage of the plagues and that duet where it's really the culmination of the film, right? That's the climax where we see the ultimate end that these disparate paths they've chosen to walk lead them to an unstoppable force and an immovable object. And then eventually, you know, Pharaoh crumbles under the, the force of God's power is the story that's told. Yeah, I just loved how how they went about presenting that difference between, I guess, what Moses was doing and, and what the Egyptians were choosing to believe. Probably the last thing I, I had as far as my notes was just this kind of like the technical aspect with the blending of CG and hand-drawn uh, traditional animation you know, they have these huge set pieces and a lot of stuff was was groundbreaking. Like they had to write software, they had to develop methods to adapt to create these shots that had really never been done before. I'm thinking about in particular the chariot race, the sand, well, the nose breaking off the statue and the sand spilling down and the parting of the Red Sea. And then I guess the plagues in general as well, since a lot of that was CGI with the locusts and I guess famine is what's shown by the insects consuming the wheat. Yeah, I think they used it to good, to good effect. It's kind of like the like the dawn of CGI, right? 98? Like Toy Story came out in 94. And if you watch it now, or is it 95, I guess. Either way. It's like dated now. <laughs> it's been a while since I've seen it. You kind of remember the story more than how it looks. And, you know, what Lord of the Rings, I think, came out in 2001. So I think Gollum still holds up pretty well. Which you could you could talk all about that, I'm sure. But yeah, it was, I think it was a good blend because a lot of it's still hand animated, but it's just enhanced by that. One thing that I thought was was really cool learning about their process how they would layer their two-day paintings with 3D artifacts. Um, so they talked about like how they got that shot with the nose falling through the scaffolding. The scaffolding. I mean, because Spielberg came in, he's like, "No, you should follow the nose down instead of shooting it, instead of creating it in coverage." 
And they're like, well, if Spielberg says, I guess we should do it, but we have like no idea how to do this. The, the background of like the statue is hand painted. And then I think the, the scaffolding is a 3D sim with the nose breaking, but then you have people are hand painted in front of that all of their elements like with the sand spilling down as well the sand is animated but then you have like the hand-drawn characters on it and so it's all about they would like have a hand-painted background they would sprinkle in 3d animated elements and they, they have another hand painting on top of it and they just do such a good job of of blending everything there's not really any moments that kind of stand out as as not working or as aging poorly the one exception I might make maybe would be the chariot race. Just, I don't know, there's something slightly off-putting about how the, the walls look as we're moving past everything. It, I don't feel like it matches as perfectly as the rest of their sequences do. It ages a lot better than anything else that was being done with computers at that time. I guess it makes sense if you think about it, but I never really realized, you know, all of the locusts, all of the insects, all of those things were computer generated because they just fit so perfectly into it. That brings us to Mel Gibson's 2004 feature, The Passion of the Christ. So, interesting film. I don't know what's your take on The Passion. <laughs> this one's not for me. I might, I might have to, you know... Maybe if I watched it again, it would leave a more favorable impression. But I guess I don't want to watch it again either. Yeah. And I went into it like wanting to enjoy it. You know, I wanted to to like it and have an experience with it because I mean, it's the story of Jesus Christ. It's it's captivated what probably billions of people over the millennia. The story's been around, so. I mean, talk about good source material, but it fell flat for me. Yeah, I I very much had a same the same experience. Um, not just because it is you know the story of Christ. I mean, the Bible is the most sold book in the history of the world. I'm pretty sure, but also just because of an understanding of the film as kind of a cinematic moment in history it was unprecedented it's an indie film because nobody would produce it so gibson had to finance it himself and it became an international phenomenon and i mean i feel like there's it's a fairly polarizing film at the time there was a lot of criticism and, and there's still a lot of think pieces out there you know staunchly supporting or attacking the film and I, I guess that's kind of the territory you're stepping in when you choose to adapt a faith narrative. I, I feel like there there is a certain distance between something like The Prince of Egypt, which is a story about, uh, you know, Moses and freeing the Israelites because nobody, I don't know, for most people, yeah, he's a prophet of God. Their faith isn't in Moses, right? Whereas people believe in Jesus Christ as their savior. And so if you're telling a story about something that's held so near and dear to so many people, you're going to elicit strong reactions. I went in really looking forward to it as a film I'd been wanting to watch for years, but I don't know for, for some reason I never got around to it, but I, 
rather quickly soured to the film and at the end was pretty much openly mocking it as watch as I watched it just as like a coping mechanism I like I had a hard time watching it to the end just because so much of what they do just bumped for me it rubbed me the wrong way great let me preface that first because i feel like it's kind of related i think if you look at it kind of a whole is what's lacking like i have a laundry list of stuff that i would change if i was the director or or the you know a writer for it but i just feel like there's no substance to it we talked about the prince of egypt right being a story about brothers i feel like this is a story about a guy who dies and, and like not in any dramatic well it is in a dramatic way I guess there's just no emotional stakes in it, yeah, it's, which is surprising because it's it's Jesus Christ, right? Like there should be. Maybe, you know, as we kind of delve into why it, why it doesn't have that, you know, it'll become more apparent why, but it, it just doesn't. I feel like dramatic is a fair word. And as long as like it were scoped in this realm of narratively dramatic, because it really lacks narrative shape. We, we open with Christ in the garden being, you know, uh, apprehended by the, the Jews. And I, I feel like the biggest thing for me, and it's a, I mean, it's not unique to us. It was a common criticism of the film was the lack of backstory or the lack of character. Yes, a thousand percent. I feel like maybe he just take a, took it for granted that everyone knows who Jesus Christ was and, you know, the story behind it. And uh, honestly, to, like to understand even a lot of what happens in the movie, you have to understand the Bible, right? Like when he's writing in the sand, I think that was a scene in there. Like there's no context for it if you don't, yeah. if you don't know the, you know, the story. It's an interesting question of when you're retelling a story that, I think it's fair to assume everybody who saw the passion of the Christ knew the story they were going to be seeing. I mean, there's probably, you know, 1% of people who saw it because it was a cultural phenomenon without, you know, the, the basic understanding of what it was, but like everybody knows going in the story of Jesus, but that doesn't mean you don't have to tell the story. And to me, it was fascinating to listen to the commentary track. There's three commentary tracks with the film, one with uh, Gibson and the cinematographer. And I think Jim Caviezel is there as well. There's another theological commentary where Gibson brings on a father and like a biblical scholar. And then there's one, another one with the music um, about, by the composer that I didn't listen to. They talked about, like, they recognized a criticism of, of, the, of the film was a lack of background, a lack of story. And their argument is that the flashbacks are sufficient. And I wholeheartedly disagree with that, both from a structural standpoint of, I mean, we're like 20 minutes into the story. When we first receive a flashback, you know, that's like 90 seconds, two minutes long. Mm -hmm. And like you said, all of the flashbacks are reliant on the understanding of the Christ narrative, right? Having a, a short scene of him breaking bread and saying, you know, this is my flesh 
It has no meaning if you do not already understand the story of Christ. And so it does nothing to, you know, further the, the narrative of the piece. It does nothing to provide that backstory because even the flashbacks are reliant on you understanding the story beforehand. So in that sense, what is the point of tell of making this film? If you're not going to tell the story, it's just visuals that only have meaning to people who come with the story already in their heads. Right. Maybe it's a, a question of proportion, you know, like how much time is dedicated to, to what? Cause I, I, I think maybe like the one scene that, Cause I guess if I was in Mel Gibson's place, it would be like, how can I, I would, I think I would want to tell the story of the passion of the Christ through, um, you know, the eyes of Jesus Christ. I think that that's just the approach I would take. I think that's the, the best way in the same way, right? Like the Prince of Egypt was through Moses's eyes. It's kind of this, I guess the obvious answer, but I think for a reason, you know, you ask how to do that. I, I remember that I think there was a scene where Jesus was making a table or something with Mary, I'm assuming it was his, it was his mother, Mary, even though like, she seemed like super young in there, like, like the same age as Jesus Christ, but it kind of showed like the more human side of Christ. So I think, and I guess it's consistent with what he said in the, in the commentary based on what, you know, you're telling me that it was, it was an idea, I guess, or an attempt to to provide substance and to provide something that you could latch on to as, as a viewer to make you more sympathetic to the protagonist. So I have two thoughts on that. The first is from a analytical view of the way the story is told. I understand like Gibson's argument, right? Because he wants to focus the narrative solely on the passion of the Christ, solely on the stations of the cross you know, this liturgical understanding that Catholics and several branches of religion participate in culturally every Holy Week. So he wants that to be the story. And then he he has the flashbacks in there to contextualize the, the passion. But I think maybe one of the aspects that you said is just, it's insubstantial. There's not enough context given by the backstory to work as the sole support to contextualize the the passion of the Christ as he journeys with the cross to be crucified because I mean I I know the story of Christ I know what's going to happen as I watch it but that's irrelevant because like we're experiencing the narrative storytelling of Gibson through the film and so irregardless of my personal feelings on Christ if, if the story doesn't earn its payoff, then the payoff will not feel earned. And it's, I think that's the, the biggest issue for me is it doesn't earn the emotional moments. And I think also something that, that we talked about <laughs> while we were watching and right after was a lack of nuance to Gibson's storytelling. Mm-hmm which I haven't seen all of his films, but the ones I have, I would consider Gibson one of the least nuanced directors. He, he's very much, I do feel like he isn't sincere in the stories he tells, like We Were Soldiers, Hackshaw Ridge. 
it's stuff that interests him and that he does feel passionate about, but he's so on the nose with everything he does. Mm -hmm. And it really bumps in the passion because there's a lack of, of nuance to the characters and to the story in general, where the, the people we're watching on screen are becoming caricatures of what they're meant to represent. Like the, the Romans were, I guess with the exception of maybe Pilate and the legate, who, I don't know his name, but like a little Lieutenant under um, Pilate, they were the ones that kind of see normal, but like the Romans in general were like caricatures of, of cruelty. And it's a tough question because if you if you're making a movie, I don't think there's anything wrong. In fact, it, it can be used to good effect to have, you know, dramatizations of of people. You know, you want cruelty that is maybe unrealistic, but you have to, I guess, sell it the right way. And, you know, that's the that's the art of, you know, cinema, being able to do that and directing the same problem persists, not just with the Romans, but with the saints. Like, I think both. Mary, the mother, you know, Jesus follows him, I think, kind of throughout the movie and some of the saints as well, the apostles. And they're just like character caricatures of martyrs, right? They're always crying in the background and stuff. I don't know. I, I would be curious to see if it, if you tempered the the cruelty that they had with some banality and made them less one dimensional, if it would help. In regards to him as a filmmaker, I'm um, kind of going back to what you said before we you know, start talking about this. You said he was in Hacksaw Ridge, like he was the director of that or something? I think so. But when I said that, I started to doubt myself. I know he did We Were Soldiers. Yeah, he directs uh, Hacksaw Ridge as well. Hmm. I thought that's what you were asking about. I thought you were asking, asking about Hacksaw. I don't know, because I, I kind of like that movie. So I wonder what, maybe the difference lies in the material then in a certain sense. I don't know. With these things, there's like a billion factors, right? A, a billion variables. What do you plug in for, you know, how much was the director and how much the authors or the writers, I mean, how much the actors, you know. But I guess the movie that I would compare it to is in terms of directing and and just broad stroke, what's the story is Apocalypto. That, that's Gibson, isn't it? Yeah. And um, I, I actually liked Apocalypto. I don't think, like, if we talk about substance to the story, I don't feel like there's a lot you know, under the surface, a lot to it. It's a pretty simple story about a guy, you know, who gets kidnapped by a tribe to be sacrificed. And that's pretty much the whole movie just progresses through that idea. But I think what makes that so much different is it's like uh, visually stunning to me, you know, like the tri tribal people and the background, the temples and all this stuff that you don't see at all that you maybe here we here in the West couldn't conceptualize as easily and stuff that's out of time. Whereas with the, you know, the passion of the Christ, it's a biblical story. You know, how many films have been done by churches or what have you about Jesus Christ that you've kind of seen um, or the same thing with the Romans, how much, you know, have we heard about the Romans and talked about the Romans? So you know, you kind of need, I guess, maybe a little more spark to make it interesting. Whereas with something like, you know, discovering a, a new world, you don't cause, because there's a lot of novelty there and hasn't been touched. I think Apocalypto is kind of a really good mirror for the passion 
because they're both historical epics. They're both shot in a period and location-based language instead of modern parlance. They're not filmed in English. And I'm not a really big fan of Apocalypto, to be honest. I felt it was okay, but it really didn't draw me in. But I do feel like it's a much better film than The Passion because it has an entire narrative. I think, like anybody who's, who listens to the podcast knows, I talk a lot about the idea of narrative shape and, and the components of good narrative structure. You know, you have a character with a desire, you have stakes, they, they have to reach some kind of conclusion, they climax as a denouement. But it, it's really like, I talk about that so much because from my point of view, that's the building block, right? Film is just another medium of storytelling. I know there are films, there's avant-garde films, there's there's movements in cinema that are not focused on strong narratives, but, you know, character studies or emotions. There are films that are created to be tone poems. But for me, the draw of cinema is to provide a more intimate understanding of the story through visuals, through audio cues, through acting. For, for me, everything in a film should be in service to the story. And Apocalypto, I mean, we have stakes, you know, we want the the young man to get back to his wife and children. And we, you know, we, we understand, like, I don't know, it's just, they're fundamentally different because there is that narrative shape, you know, they get attacked, he gets captured, he breaks free, is he going to survive? Is he going to get there in time to save his family? And with the passion, it, it's lacking that and I think for me the biggest reason is because it starts with Jesus being captured and it it does end with him being resurrected but that that's like I don't know a minor point of the story as far as like so not I'm not saying to the story of Christ obviously the resurrection is the whole purpose of the story but as far as like the way the film is structured and the my experience of the film is that's like a little blip at the end because we spend, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes with Christ suffering on a cross. And then we have a single 20 second shot of him being resurrected. Obviously like the narrative puts more weight on the crucifixion and it's, it's, I think to me, it's related really closely with what, we talked about, you know, I, I feel like it would be better if at least some of the Romans, it was more banal. It's like, yeah, I mean, we're crucifying this guy today. I got another crucifixion on Thursday. Uh, yeah. I feel like that could even be kind of chilling in a way. Cause you could have them doing these like really cruel and terrible things, even kind of jesting about it. But I feel like just the way it was portrayed was like I said, as a caricature rather than, you know, you're kind of joking with your buddies at work. Yeah. If you have that with the cruelty, I feel like that would be more, um, I, what's the word like engaging? Yeah. I would say engaging. That makes sense. It's, um, so this is kind of like drastically different world, but it's like that line in the mortal Kombat film with Raul Julia. It was the worst day of your life, but for me it was a Wednesday, right? It's, that's such an iconic line. Well, because Raul Julia is awesome, but because it's that idea of, yeah, like I destroyed your life on that day. But I mean, I do that to people every day. It's like nothing out of the ordinary for me. 
And I, I feel like from my limited understanding of history, that's really what it would have been like for most of the centurions is, I mean, they crucified thousands upon thousands of people. And to them, Christ is a nobody. He's just another Jew. So that's what really sticks out is that lack of nuance where we have the one centurion, you know, he sees Mary and he asks, who's that? And he has like a moment, oh, this guy has a mom and we're beating him as he carries a cross covered in blood after being scourged to be killed. Every other centurion has some kind of sadistic joy out of beating Christ, out of yelling at the other Jews, out of making this a spectacle. Like there's, there's the moment where he takes the, the nine tells, hits the guard's desk and the blood splays on his face and he's smiling and enjoying it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like obviously that's purposeful. And I think it would have better served Gibson's purpose if it wasn't the only setting, right? It's this notion of, you know, I guess since it is, we're talking about religion, you know, you know the new scripture, you can't experience the joy without knowing the sorrow, right? If the centurions are always 100% evil, I don't know, it doesn't carry the same impact as if there's a moment when, when a centurion is nice then that kind of makes the time when they act evil more impactful. And for the narrative as a whole, we only have those very brief respites where we drop into a flashback and they're so short and so far in between that the whole film is Christ bloodied falling in slow motion to the dirt. There's so many shots of him falling in slow motion. It's so heavy handed and there's not that moment to cool down, to really be impacted by, by the visual of Christ's suffering. Cause it's just a constant bombardment. Yeah. That's what I really think too. So I guess maybe it sounds like he had particular intentions and a particular purpose, you know, in, in how he made it. Maybe he wanted a different goal. All of my critiques I feel are based on how can I make this an impactful movie to the audience? How can I engage the audience and make them um, weep for Christ that he's suffering and dying in the Prince of Egypt. This is just something I've kind of thought about as we've been talking. If you look at the characters, there's so many like one-on-one little moments, right? Like between Moses and Zipporah or Moses and um, Miriam, Moses and Aaron, Jethro, Ramses. There's all these, these chances that you get to see people acting out the drama on a one-on-one purpose, you get to see their relationships. You get to see kind of behind the scenes a bit into their lives and their experiences. When I look at the passion of the Christ, like you said, the balance is on, on, you know, the crucifixion and the, the suffering of Christ. It's, it's really divorced from the interactions that he has with, with the apostles, with Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother with the people that he's dying to save. I think the biggest thing that I would do if I was going to remake that was is shift the balance and show, you know, through whatever means have those one-on-one moments with Jesus and, and the people that he's serving and helping and the people that he knows and really explore that. Yes, I agree with you. I did kind of, so I'll be honest, I was pretty angry when I finished the film I was so frustrated because I feel like it could be an epic. And I, I, when I say that, I don't mean to come off too harshly because I know it is a beloved film by many. 
I mean, it was literally a groundbreaking experience, like from a cinematic history landscape or point of view, because it's this independent faith film that set world records for box office that, I mean, church groups went as church activities to experience the Passion of the Christ in cinemas. And they had very moving, very real experiences. And I don't want to discount that. But, you know, I, I can't separate my experience and, and my upbringing from that. And maybe that's something we could talk about when we do when we get more into the comparison of the two films is when you're telling a faith narrative, you can't avoid the baggage people are going to bring. And that's something that really stood out to me in the commentaries is you would have the theologians and they would like talk about a specific moment, you know, two characters meet eyes and they spend like two minutes talking about that. That's valid, but a lot of the things they talked about didn't work for me. But I do feel like listening to the commentaries, I gained a greater respect for what they were trying to do. In in the, the main commentary with the DP and Gibson, they talk a lot about their inspirations and they drew a lot of inspiration from classical art pieces, classical paintings, I mean. And you know what? I think that's shown through. Like it is like visually a very dramatic film. Yeah. So I I started to kind of reassess the film through those eyes that what they were trying to do, at least how I understand it, is they were trying to create the cinematic equivalent of a painting of Christ on the cross, right? Of a painting of Christ on Golgotha. And I feel like they are fairly successful with that. I'm not going to lie that it, it is a very well shot film. I don't agree with all of even the stylistic choices. I think for me personally, the garden is too blue, but I can't deny that they have striking visuals. And there are even some moments that I do think play very well. You talked a lot about the notion of having moments of seeing Christ with those he served. And again, we're coming back to the flashbacks because really that's like the outside of the passion. That's really the only narrative. That's really the only storytelling we have. There's the moment when Christ is being scourged and we cut from a Roman's foot being splattered by blood to Christ washing the feet of his disciples. And if there was more of that, because that right there is connective tissue, right? It's using the visuals to match cut, to draw a parallel between a centurion getting washed in blood and Christ watching, washing his disciples with water. And I do feel like, I mean, in the theological commentary, they get into a lot about, you know, the, I guess the, the messages you could take away from that, which on a whole nother level, like if we want to talk theology, I have problems with that. Yes. You could look to, you could look to, to media for, for inspiration and to fill the spirit. I don't really think we should spend too much time discussing the theological merits of a Hollywood film. Anyways, like stuff like that, where, you know, you use the tools of cinema to tell your story, to draw, you know, to, to flashback, to see Christ serving his apostles. That's beautiful. That That's what should be going on. But it just, maybe it really ultimately is just the question that didn't come down to enough runtime of, of seeing him with them. The, the other thing I wanted to talk about was 
Christ as a character, because Christ is a religious figure, but in talking solely about the motion picture passion of the Christ, what Christ is, is a character in a narrative. And so you have to provide characterization to him. And that's something that for me is, is really lacking in the film. And one thing I was struck by that I'll give them credit for is showing the suffering of, of Christ, which from everything I've read, everything I've listened to, that really was Gibson's ultimate goal and something that did have that desired effect on a lot of people. I think Ebert even went so far as to say that he, he recommends the film. He gave it four stars because watching the film let him experience what he felt like he should have doing the the litany of the stations of the cross or or the passion you know during holy week as a child as a film critic he was no longer i guess he was a lapsed catholic as he would say so i i do feel like there there's definitely value in it from that point of view of you know providing a sense of reality to the sufferings of christ it comes back to that same issue of nuance right because christ is not just a man who suffered, bled, and died. He was literally the son of God. He was a divine, he was and is a divine being. This is something we've already discussed multiple times, but how do you show his divinity? And I think it re really is challenging because the age old debate of really the contradiction in Christ, how can one be mortal and divine? How can you be the son of man and the son of God? Mm -hmm. and, and something we, we've discussed is the TV show. Is it a Netflix original? Mm -hmm. Messiah. Messiah. Because the way the actor, which unfortunately I don't know his name, pull that up, Jamie. Um, <laughs> the way he presents his messianic figure, there's such a sense of charity about him. He seems so open. Like he's legitimately somebody that you like want to talk to, that you want to like sit at the feet and hear from. And I don't feel like there's any moment in the passion where I really felt like, yeah, that's, that's the son of God. That's, that's the Messiah, you know, teaching his apostles or, you know, suffering these hardships. It's so focused, so hyper-focused on Christ's suffering that for me, it fails to present the other side of him, the side that he chose to die, right? It's all about the Romans beating him and torturing him and killing him. And to me, it plays as the Romans killing him and not as him willfully deciding to give up his life. Yep, I agree. I think that makes it a lot less impactful. We talked about kind of, I guess, caricatures and, and you know, how high do you turn the levels? I feel like with Christ as a character, he he's the one character that you would want to maybe turn the dial up a little more than reality would dictate, right? Like... I, I feel like even in reality, right? Like there are certain characters like the Dalai Lama that have a gravitas to them and that kind of have that maybe at times enigmatic or spiritual element to them that can really be powerful. And yeah, like you've mentioned, I feel like that's kind of missing. So we talked about Messiah. I, I think it's kind of apples and oranges probably in a sense, because, you know, the passion is a story about Christ and, and the Messiah, I would really recommend the Messiah. It's a really interesting 
kind of short little series, but, and it's not the best thing I've ever seen, but it's really engaging and interesting, but it's really more of a hypothetical question that what if, what if Jesus Christ came to the modern world in the same way that he did to the ancient world? That's kind of how I would describe it. But yeah, like the messianic character in that has that a, a kind of a sense of mystery to him, but also like a, like a humility, I guess, kind of, and a, a godliness, I guess, that you would expect of the Messiah. And we talked about having individual moments to kind of humanize the character in a sense. I'm going to say that in a sense, because it really is feeding into the divine element, I think, because you see him as a sage, right? But in, in Messiah, there's one scene where like a statesman, I don't know what he is, a senator or something, or the right hand man to the president sends like a, a prostitute that he uses to seduce the Messiah and use that against him. And in that scene, like he sees through her and he's able to heal her in some way, you know, reach through the deceit and touch her heart. And it is very compelling, not only her, but like the FBI guy listening on the phone. And that's like the one scene that really, really stands out to me in the whole series. And in some way that you're able to have like probably the strongest emotional connection with in the film. And so if I was going to make the passion of the Christ, I think that would be a touchstone for me, that, that scene in particular. And that idea of to hold up and compare it against the movie and ask myself, all right, is, is my movie achieving this? Is this what Christ feels like to me in this moment? Yeah, I, I feel like that's super fair. And I, I feel like we're, we're very much on the same wavelength with how we experience the passion and, and what we liked and disliked. I feel like it's interesting to compare the scene in Messiah with the scene that you already talked about in the passion where Christ, when confronted with an adulteress, he draws in the sand. I, I don't know, maybe we're beating a dead horse, but the problem with the scene in the passion is without the biblical context, it, it doesn't really have much meaning. You have to know what you're seeing. Maybe it's a, it's a side effect of their focus on converting paintings or the filling of paintings to film. Because I, I do feel like most of the film is visually driven. And that probably comes across even in the choice to have all of the dialogue in Aramaic and Greek and Latin. And Gibson initially wasn't even going to include any subtitles. Because to him, the, the story is not one told in dialogue, but one told purely visually. Okay. That was a little art house for me. <laughs> I'm going to say it. But you can see that the scene where, where Christ saves the adulteress, the scene where Christ, I think there's a couple scenes of him healing people of physical infirmities, right? There's the scene where he heals a blind man, at least as far as I recall, all, all it is, is, is a visual, right? Narratively, it accomplishes nothing more than having a still shot of, you know, a painting of Christ healing a blind man. It doesn't play out as a scene, but it is a snippet of a flashback of an image. All we have is, oh, he healed this guy, right? It doesn't go into the depth of providing characterization. So we can't really relate to the man being healed because we've only seen him being healed. There's not a touchstone there for oh, like, yeah, this guy is having a really hard time being blind. That must really suck for him. Christ comes, 
and through his faith, through the faith of the man and through the love of Christ, he is healed. Instead, it, it, it's just him being healed. And without the, the proper context, without the setup, without working to establish and, and really earning that payoff, it isn't a payoff at all. It's just, you know, here's, here's one visual out of millions that will show you throughout this runtime. And so it kind of lacks any, any punch, it lacks strong emotionality. Maybe this would be a good place to say it. I think you kind of talked about the idea of like having the, you know, the the language be a distinctive thing and trying to match these paintings. I think that kind of shines through a lot in the in the set design, in the costumes, and obviously the language they used. I guess I'm not quite sure about how, you know, where I stand on that. In some sense, I think maybe it's kind of an arbitrary choice. Like you can have it and it would work to good effect. You can have it and it doesn't. I guess I guess my point is that there are certain things that are more fundamental that I would fix before I even touch that stuff. For me personally, I think the focus seemed a little too strong in that because the fundamental stuff were, was missing. That it seemed to to distract me or kind of pull me out a bit more. I'm going to point to the music in particular. We talked about the Prince of Egypt. Such a, you know, strong, well done soundtrack. Powerful, timeless pieces of music. I don't know if they talk about it in the commentaries at all, but it seemed like they were a little more focused on accuracy to the to the area in the music they had. Like with the instruments you hear, they sound like the ethnic instruments or whatever that you would, you know, someone like me that has no idea about that, but seems kind of um, consistent with the area and, and maybe the time. Whereas I wonder, maybe you don't take that kind of ultra realistic true to the last detail route we started this episode by reading the the opening title scene of the prince of egypt where they said yeah we took some artistic liberties maybe you take that with the music right and make it not true to the time period or the region something a little more recognizable to the audience something that they would engage with more since they have a familiarity with it and certain connotations of it um, like how depictions of Christ and art are anglicized a lot. I don't know, like, you know, how much Christianity really exists out in the East or something, but I imagine it's consistent with some art I've seen where, you know, like in the East, he has um, more Asian features, right? So it's something that's not true to life, but it's something that allows people to relate more with him. Maybe it shouldn't be that way. Maybe. No, I think that's natural. I mean, that's why we have, what's that word? Anglicized. Anglicized depictions of Christ is because the strength of Christianity in Europe. Yeah. And, you know, that's like the kind of bringing what Dan Carlin has said about newscasting, right? Like that's how corporations try to make their news compelling and keep audiences is to localize the story, make it relatable to the individual person. So I just think it's an interesting idea. Like how much do you, artistic license do you take in, in making it more relatable at the expense of the historical reality of it? And I don't, I think, I think you can have interesting results both ways and it kind of depends on your purpose. I've said it before, like my purpose in making this movie, if I was to be Mel Gibson would be to make it like more relatable to the, to the viewer and less historically accurate, you know, he had a different motivation. So I think, you know, he, he achieved it, but. That's really interesting. Cause I mean, I don't have a musician's ear, so I didn't even like get anywhere close to picking up on that. Like, I guess the, the origin of the, the musical stylings, but 
you, you did raise that question of, you know, a lot of the intent behind the filmmakers was historical accuracy, right? From shooting in uh, the, the Middle East. I'm not exactly sure where they shot. They shot in the Middle East, I assume, right? Well, at least from a costume standpoint, from a language standpoint, from music, the, the question of when do you deviate from the story you're adapting and for what purpose? We, we talked a little bit about in The Prince of Egypt, a lot of the, the relation and the interactions between Ramses and Moses are not scriptural, but they serve the purpose of the story. There, there is this notion of hyper-focus on the realism, on the accuracy, on the historicity of the Passion of the Christ. There, there's two questions there. One is, is that an end in and of itself? And two, when you do deviate, what's the motivation behind it? Because there are obvious elements to the Passion that are not based in the biblical narrative. So, so Gibson wrote the Passion and then he had it, you know, obviously translated by others. But there is a lot of what Christ says in the film. He's, mo most of his lines are quoting from Psalms. And the story, for all intents and purposes, is taken from the, the Gospels. There's still moments that are not based on that. And so we have to ask ourselves, why are those included? The one that stands out to me that I hate the most is probably my single greatest issue with the film is the scene with Jesus making the table. So from a story standpoint, what Gibson, what all of the people in the commentary track say is that is a great scene because it provides context for his relationship with Mary. And that relationship is a huge motif in the piece, largely because in the general Christian dogma, there is, you know, a reverence and in some places, even a deification of Mary. So obviously a substantial point of view in the film is Mary's. We follow her throughout the whole passion and we see her suffer for Christ or perhaps with Christ would be better. It's that an anachronism. I hate it so much. It's something we brought up with when we did the Midnight in Paris. I loathe the scene where Pender told, tells Bunuel to make the angel, the exterminating angel. Like he gives him the plot to the film. Just something about that and my personal like tastes and, and my personal checkbox hits me so wrong. And when Christ says, oh, I'm making a table that you sit down at with tall chairs. Like I hate it so much. And I don't get why it's in there. If he's spending 40 million of his own dollars because nobody wants to finance a historically accurate film told in languages people can't understand about Jesus Christ, why, why would you ever have the scene? Like to me, it plays like borderline slapstick. Oh, Christ invented modern tables and chairs. It's, oh, I hate it so much, so much. Okay, but that's like a throwaway scene, essentially. If that was like my only issue with the film, it would be an amazing film. The bigger issue comes with his depictions of evil throughout. Namely Satan, okay? <laughs> Woman Satan, 
crazy choice if you're doing it was a woman things. it's played by a woman i think it's in in the film it's supposed to be androgynous because like bald in it yeah i don't know the first time i saw it, i'm like <laughs> why is satan a woman i i didn't notice i thought it was maybe just a dude i didn't really i guess i guess in my mind it was but like that character straight up made me laugh you know <laughs> like physically out loud i'm laughing so i don't think that's what you want so i don't want to interrupt you but i just want to say like if i was going to do that character one of two ways would be good like, have a very um symbolic i guess in a way from hannibal how they have that motif of the of the stag throughout the whole series and sometimes when it depicts uh, hannibal lecter in in his mind like a black character right with the stag horns on it it's like not realistic or you know it's, it's symbolic but mm -hmm. um they use it to get an effect in the series and i think if you're going to do something like that since there's no real reaction this is more of a background character to have something dramatic like that could be kind of cool or the other way i think to go with it would be to have it just be like a regular kind of guy in the same way that jesus is but have them interact in some way like in the movie like verbally how in the bible when jesus is tempted for 40 days satan comes to him or when he fasts for 40 days satan comes to him has something like that right they just picked the i guess the middle of the road where there's some bizarre looking characters just hanging in the background like what's going on yeah to me it's just such a strange choice well first we open with satan and jesus in the garden okay obviously satan would have some role to play in the garden of gethsemane i'm not saying he isn't but like I don't know, in the biblical account, it doesn't talk about Satan being there. It's about Jesus suffering and praying in the garden, his disciples falling asleep, and an angel coming to support him. First, we don't have the angel, which, I mean, honestly probably wouldn't fit in, like, the whole rest of the tonality and visuals of the film to have a literal angel, because everything is very grounded in reality. Even though we have this character who is literally the devil on earth, she never interacts with anybody in the crowd, right? I guess he. I, I, I don't think the purpose was to have the devil be a woman. But if it isn't, then why cast a woman? I don't know. It boggles my mind. Almost as much as having Jesus invent chairs and tables. <laughs> <laughs> but, so, character that represents the devil just gliding through the crowds. One thing that they brought up on the theological commentary is Mary is the only character to ever interact with the devil. They make eye contact in one scene. Not even Jesus ever uh, meets the devil's eyes. And for Gibson the devil and the demonic baby she's holding and the little children with the rings from the Lord of the Rings face when uh, Bilbo gets the ring taken back, you know? Do you know that face that he makes? I don't know the face the children make. Or is that when they're it's, like tormenting yeah, when they're Judas? Like beating up on Judas when he sits in an alley. Right. They have these distorted faces. The one kid has his eye cut out or whatever. They got these sharp fang teeth. So his idea behind putting all of these visuals in, again, it comes back to, he wants to tell everything in his story purely through visuals. And so his idea behind that is we need a representation of evil. Because in his reading of the Bible, throughout the, the story of the passion, there is this peripheral sense of, of evil or, or gloom enshrouding parts of the the story at least that's what i got from his commentary 
I personally don't see at all in, in the biblical narrative. You know, obviously we have moments where, where Satan comes to tempt Christ. So even if we take at face value, we want this notion of there is evil, there's evil interlaced in the narrative. I think I would choose to do something similar to what you said, a more abstract visual representation. I mean, plus we have all of these characters who are supposed to be evil. The, the Romans, especially the Jewish leaders, are they called the Sanhedrin? Is that, that's Jewish, right? The Jewish leaders, they're, they're supposed, like, they're these cartoonishly evil characters. So why not use them to provide this sense of evil? You know, you could do that in lighting, like have, have deep, dark shadows, musical cues that tune into this, this frequency of there's this spiritual darkness and evil energy uh, around points of this story. I don't just, it doesn't work for me at all. And I don't really understand why we have that. There's the, the strong visual imagery at the beginning where you have Jesus kneeling in the garden. You have Satan as a presence there. You have the serpent as kind of a parallel between the, the first garden with Adam and Eve and, and the Satan, Satan tempting them with a serpent. And then even Jesus uses his hill to crush the serpent's head. There's obviously all of this purposeful imagery built around, I guess, relating the two gardens. I, I can understand mental, like purely abstracted from the film level of the reason we see Satan, the reason we see these children being deformed is to represent some evil force, the force of Satan. But it doesn't work. And I really just hate the devil's one thing. Don't agree with a lot of the devil, but like at least it doesn't interact with anybody except Mary. But then you have Judas and he fighting with these children who become demonified or whatever and then you like him and he, he they follow him up to this hill you know to the valley of death or whatever it is called where they would like burn refuse and throw dead bodies and he hangs himself with the altar of a horse which was actually interesting to learn that based off some i think i don't know if it's biblically but like based off scholars they say that he he did hung, hang himself with a halter well so. doesn't some of the i guess the accounts doesn't he fall down and disembowel himself on the rocks? Yeah. Was that in the movie? Mm, no. I, I don't think it was. I, it's just him hanging. It should have been. That would have been cool. <laughs> and like, they don't have a problem with gore in the movie, so why yeah. not? And he, he talks about, oh, I did it because the power of the devil is everywhere. And so it's taking something inherently good, like a child or a baby, and kind of twisting God's head so it's evil. And I just slapped myself on the forehead and said, my goodness, I do not <laughs> want to watch this anymore. <laughs> so I actually didn't finish the second commentary because I just got sick of it. Fun but. fact, you know that when they throw the coins through the air, <laughs> those are real coins. Yeah, you guys. So when you watch the scene where where the Jewish leaders throw the 30 pieces of silver to Judas, you might think that that's CG. You might want to approach Mel Gibson and say, how did you get that shot? That was so cool. <laughs> they just did that for real. They just set up a camera and, and threw a bag of coins through the air. And he's very proud of that fact. <laughs> Part three. So now we're just going to kind of wrap up. We want to talk about the difference between the Prince of Egypt and the Passion of the Christ. We've kind of sprinkled in our thoughts throughout talking about both of the films individually. 
But I thought just to wrap it up, we could kind of talk about, I guess they're ultimately the lessons you would take away if you were adapting a faith narrative, which I, I think, I guess it's kind of because we're coming from a Christian background and coming from an LDS background. So there there are differences, you know, between Mormon doctrine and and standard Christianity or the Catholic fair that's represented in Passion of the Christ and a lot of the films, which I think is something, you know, worth addressing because I, I do feel like there are, there's influences that made me appreciate the passion less and take umbrage with certain things because I have a different theological background, a different understanding of, of the gospel, maybe. Looking at these two films or, you know, even relying on the Messiah or the temptation of Christ, just films that are based on, on faith narratives, what are the do's and don'ts? Focus on the characters and their interactions. You need a good soundtrack. Music is so important in something like this where you want an emotional response. I don't know. There's like a bunch, but it's hard to kind of go through. Use your dramatic elements in the right way, right? Like use them on Jesus and, and Satan if you're going to have, you know, if that's your story or I don't know. I'm sure examples abound in the Prince of Egypt. You know, there's a, I'm sure there's a lot you can point to and say that. Yeah, it's pretty dramatic. Like the slaves, maybe. I think the slaves would be, they're not, they're really not super nuanced. They're kind of a background element that's, you know, heavily dramatized and not, yeah, I guess kind of think about that. That's kind of used in a well way in the Prince of Egypt and not so much in the passion with your main character, have him be multidimensional to the extent you can have him be what he needs to be, you know, a prophet or a Messiah, but show the humanity and the, and make him relatable. It's all about characterization. And I feel like that's what the Prince of Egypt does so well and what the passion essentially for me doesn't do at all is provide the characterization that we need to, to compel us through the story. One of the things I, I thought about was you talked earlier about in your film of Christ's life, or even if it's just a film about the crucifixion, the passion of Christ, you talked about this notion of point of view, right? And I think that's really interesting because there, there's a lot of implications when you choose a point of view, right? We, we have primarily the point of view of Moses for the prince of Egypt. He, he is the protagonist. We, t we see the story through his eyes. I, I will give, I mean, there, there are moments when you want to like see somebody else's point of view of the happenings, right? We, we see, we understand and we feel Pharaoh's point of view. And, and even, you know, to a minor extent, we, we have the moment with, you know, Aaron and Miriam where we kind of like, oh man, Moses just isn't quite there yet. And, you know, even Aaron and the slaves are mad at Moses because when he first tries to help, he makes things worse. So you have these these moments where they're, they're like the human moments of the story that really provide it meaning, I guess, ultimately for me. And I do think for me, that's the thing that the passion does best. I love the the story of Pilate and his wife. And, and you get to, that's like, to me, that is a meaningful story that deserved to be told. Right, we we can see the struggle of Pilate, where yeah, he doesn't really want to kill Jesus. If he doesn't, the Jews will riot, and the Roman emperor will come and cut off his head. And he knows that, and he says that, and that provides that 
It provides character motivation. We know more about Pilate and the passion of the Christ than we do about Jesus. We get to spend time in his relationship with him and his wife. We get to see and experience his troubles as he, the last scene um, when he talks with Jesus and Jesus asks him what is truth, I think, or he asked Jesus one of the way the question comes up, what is truth? We continue on with Christ. And when we're coming back to Pilate, we come back to him and his wife alone in, in their mansion, in their palace, whatever. And the first things out of his mouth are what is truth? He asks his wife that. And so like in the narrative, because we've been spending this time with Christ, we know that, you know, time doesn't stop for everybody else. So when we come back to him, you get the sense of, oh man, he spent all of this time really like pondering his interaction with Jesus Christ. And, you know, ultimately he comes to, I guess, a, a poor conclusion, but you know, the one that was going to happen, Christ was going to die, but there's characterization there. There's, there's a story being told there. And I feel like that's, that's like what you should be after. So another example, after watching The Passion, I, I watched Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ, which I have different issues with and, and different likes, but it is, to me, ultimately a better film because it has something to say. And to me, The Passion doesn't have anything to say. It just wants to show us viscerally the suffering of Christ, you know, with 20 slow motion shots of him being whipped and falling into the dust with the cross on his back. Whereas the last temptation, it has a moment where Christ is raised on the cross at the end. And then we cut to a vision of an alternate life where he, you know, gets married to Mary and he has like kids and he grows old. And really that's like the, the thesis, the statement behind the last temptation is the last temptation of Christ is Satan coming to him and saying, you don't have to do this. You could have a normal life. And that's potent. That, that's a message. You know, that's something to say, you know, how do you, how do you grapple with the weight of righteousness? Ultimately the weight of the consequences of doing God's will we're doing what, you know, appears to be more pleasing or, or easier. And, you know, I, we're not, get, this isn't a film about the last temptation. I have my own issues. I don't think it's perfect, but it has something to say. And there's no reason you can't do that with the, the story of the passion. We see that with, in the Prince of Egypt. I mean, broad strokes, it follows the biblical story, but we purposely, a detour from that story to to see who Ramses is as a person, to understand the weight of being Pharaoh, to see Moses struggling with, you know, feeling worthy to to take up the mantle, to come back and free the Israelites, even though he like never really belonged with them because he was raised in the palace and whatnot. So there's all of this, you know, there's interesting questions that cinema can can raise up in these faith narratives. And I mean, ultimately, my point of view theologically for the reason we have those stories is to question, you know, to make us examine ourselves and to make us examine our lives and kind of realize, you know, I guess kind of widen our point of view. And like you said, it's, it's the greatest story ever told, you know, it's the story of, 
of Jesus Christ. You could make interesting questions. Honestly, if the whole film were about Jesus and Pilate, it would probably be a better film because there would be like more stuff to say or if it delved more into the the relationship with Mary and, and Jesus and like her sacrifice of, of watching her son die or, you know, his sacrifice of, of leaving uh, a mother he loves here in order to do the greater good. I don't know. I just feel like you should, the changes you make should serve the story, right? You shouldn't have Jesus making tables. You shouldn't have Satan wandering through the crowd. You shouldn't have these kids forming a demonic mob and chasing Judas. If those don't serve some ultimate story motive, like seeing uh, the past with Moses and Ramses or like seeing the, the priests and drawing that contrast between the power of God that the tricks of man can beguile us, but ultimately God is all powerful. I, I think it would be wrong to make a film that purely tells an existing narrative, but the deviations you make should be purposeful with a message behind them. I ultimately don't know what the thesis of the passion of the Christ is. And I'm, I guess that's ultimately because it's so shallow. It's literally just think about Christ's suffering, which to me isn't a poignant, you know, prompt. Well, that's my hot take on the passion of the Christ. You got anything else? I just want to say, just looking at, I guess the character, or I guess the actor that played Jesus Christ. I don't really, I never heard of him before. I don't even know his name now. Um, it seemed like he had like a big role in it somehow, or like he was a very particular choice. I don't know why I don't understand the context behind it. I don't know. I don't think I would have picked him. I don't know who else is out there, but part of it, I think, is the blue eyes. He has, he has like blue eyes in real life and in the movie, they like digitally made them brown. And they look bizarre in the movie. And I'm not, I'm still not sure if it was like an attempt at trying to make him have some sense of divinity with like, he's got like these brown glowing eyes or if it's just shoddy craftsmanship. That's just another little detail that pulled me out of it. At the end of the day though, I, you know, he made a movie and he took a chance. A lot of people like it. If you haven't seen it, watch it for yourself and make up your own mind. I like, you know, anyone in, in cinema that's willing to try something new and try something different against the grain, maybe, and, uh, you know, push the boundary of what's possible. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty long movie. I guess not so much, you know, it's nothing crazy, nothing more than a lot of movies coming out these days was two hours, but you know, maybe make something a little bigger, give you a little more room to put some of the story in there. And, you know, I, I would like to see more kind of historical based movies. I don't know when Gandhi came out. It feels like a while ago or Lawrence of Arabia, you know, these long detailed epic movies. There's, I think there's still a place for them. I'll watch them. And religious adaptations. There's a lot of bad ones out there. So we could, <laughs> you know, I guess he's just made for D, straight to DVD, made for DVD Christian movies that have a kind of a particular audience, but not general appeal. I think the Prince of Egypt and, and even, you know, for all the, the critiques that I have against it, the Passion of the Christ, they show that there's an audience there. 
Thank you so much for listening to Notes from the Silver Screen. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, feel free to share it with someone. As always, we'll be back right here in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode. And he's, I think he's like in God's Not Dead. He's like the professor. Never saw it, but I'm not particularly interested. All these like fetish movies for Christians. I don't know. The the one I my, my guilty pleasure is uh once I was a beehive. Something about that film, I just genuinely enjoy it. It's such a fun film. It's just one of those feel good films for me. Never seen it. And I'm not going to. <laughs>